We're in a message series called The Heart of Hope. We're ending it this week, and uh, we're having a Q&A. And part of the reasons we're doing that is because the heart of who we are as a congregation and part of the reason why we built this church is so that we could have a safe place where people could ask any question that they want about life and faith and uh, who God is and how, how that works. So uh, we're going to be like doing that today. Uh, we do it in the worship service about once a year, it seems like, but we also do it multiple times throughout the year in a lot of different ministries. One of the places we do it is Alpha. Eli, tell them a little bit about Alpha. Alpha is great. So uh, if, if you've never been uh, in a small group before, or if you're new to church, or even just looking for a refresher, Alpha teaches uh, the, the foundational principles, components of what it means to follow Jesus, everything from why should we trust the Bible to how do you have faith. Uh, that starts September 9th on Sunday. Uh, it's a Sunday evening. It lasts about 11, 12 weeks. Uh, all the info is in that catalog, and you can register online. Perfect. And we teach it together. and Yeah, it's great. Do more stuff like this. Uh, there's a couple of things that we also want to say as we get started. Number one, some of you have been thinking about these questions for a long time, uh, maybe even for years for some of you. And we're going to try to answer as many questions as we can in, in a short amount of time. So uh, we might, might feel like, well, we answered that question really quickly that you've been thinking about for a long time. It must not have been that difficult of a question. So please don't interpret it that way. We're just trying to get through as, as many as we can. The other thing we would say is if we don't get through all of the questions today, uh, please feel free to shoot us emails. Uh, almost every email I get begins with, I know you're super busy, Pastor Scott, but, so um, I don't know if I'm that busy. Just shoot me emails. In fact, if I am busy, I would much rather answer the questions that you ask in email than the other stuff that I was doing anyway, <laughs> so just send them my way. Uh, I think that's about it. All right. You got one already? Yep. First question I pulled out, where does the line get drawn between God condemning murder but supporting armies to victory? How does he differentiate between the two? Um, murder is one of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit murder. Um, and then we see plenty of examples throughout Scripture of there being um, military victories that God even orchestrates uh, in the Old Testament. So one of the things you'll hear us talk about in this, in this time is the nature of, of paradox with God. Um, and, and I think what's you know, what's important is, is the different component parts of the Bible. You know, there are parts of the Bible that, are, uh, that God gives as instructive. There are parts of the Bible that are historical. There are parts that are poetic. Um, and, and then there are some just difficulties that we encounter. And I think it's disingenuous to say that, you know, David was considered a man after God's own heart. Um, but because he had killed so many people, uh, there were consequences for that in, his, in God's economy. So where does the line get drawn and, and God supporting uh, armies. So uh, I would say that the, the Old Testament law, the, the Ten Commandments, the, all the book of Leviticus that deals with what God was giving as instructive for his people, uh, if you look back through all of it, it, it primarily has to deal with God not wanting his people, the people of Israel, to get wiped out. You know, if, if God chose a people to, to, to be their God, 
You know, he says to Moses and his followers, you will be my people and I will be your God. It wouldn't do God much good if that people all of a sudden just got wiped out by diseases or by, you know, terrible wars. And so God gives these instructions, everything from as, as simple and pointed as don't kill each other to this is how you clean up after your own human waste or dealing with, you know, how, how people who are, uh, have open wounds, or, all the Bible covers this, and God gives these instructions because the, back then they didn't know about bloodborne illnesses or uh, parasites and different things, and uh, the people of Israel were able to be sustained because they took God's law seriously, even though today it seems very prescriptive uh, and not helpful, they took those laws seriously and they persisted as a people group, they weren't just wiped out by some uh, you know, genocide or by, um, by some uh, disease. So that, that's part of it. Uh, I would say there's, there's an interesting story that um, C.S. Lewis tells. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a, a famous Christian author who also was a, uh, a pilot in World War II. One, two. Somewhere in there. Probably one. Probably one. Um, yeah, World War I. And so he's fighting in the war, and he tells this story in, in one of his books about how he, he has this thought experiment of what if he and a German pilot were, were fighting each other in the air and they both crashed at the same time and they both got up and they shot each other at the exact same time, what would happen? And he believed in Jesus and I believe in Jesus and what would happen? And C.S. Lewis says he imagines they would both just wake up in heaven, laugh, put their arms around each other and walk on in. And that's what he imagined would happen because there's a different way that God deals with our lives than we deal with our lives. Um, you know, God's love for us is about relationships. Again, God's laws in the Old Testament were about him wanting to care for his people, uh, and that persists even on through today. So, um, you know, the, there being a line that gets drawn between condemning murder um, and, and different types, you know, there really is only one category of murder, but how God deals with people is far more nuanced uh, and deals more with our relationships with each other. And Jesus ups the ante in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you've been angry at someone, uh, it's the same as murder. And he, so he, part of what Jesus is saying is, if, if, if you think the goal is to perform well enough to meet God's standard, you're never going to do it. You're no, so you better learn how to trust in God's grace for you. Uh, Leviticus 19.27 says, don't trim your beard. My spouse says, no beard. Should I follow God or my wife on this one? <clears throat> you, know what, you know what verse 28 says? Just wait, let me answer okay, it, right. Eli. <laughs> no, I saw it's in your notes. What does it say? No tattoos. No tattoos, yeah, okay. Shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> we recited the Apostles' Creed during the baptism. And the Apostles' Creed uh, is sort of centered on a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It, we say Christianity is one of the world's monotheistic religions. We only believe in one God. And we say that one God exists in three unique persons. I would think a rational... Not, you don't even have to be a skeptic. Just a rational thinking person would say, you can't have it both ways. Is it one God or is it three gods? Well, what we say is by faith, we don't completely understand the Trinity, 
But that's, that's what we believe, one God existing in three unique persons. So uh, I think a lot of times we say no one will ever figure out the Trinity, and so we just kind of don't talk about it. But one of the things I've been learning about the Trinity the last couple of years that I think is so important and helpful is the Trinity tells us God exists in relationship. That just who God is is this community of love. That's who God is, how God exists. And so a big part of what that means when it comes to how we live our lives as uh, people who are part of a Trinitarian faith is relationship is the most important thing. Jesus says the same thing in the great commandment, love God with everything you have, love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship is more important than who can interpret this verse exactly right. So kind of the way I talk about it occasionally around here, would you rather be right or in relationship? So you, you can decide for yourself if you would rather be right about the interpretation of that verse or in a relationship with your spouse. <laughs> and I can point you to other passages in the New Testament that say when we come up to those kinds of things, uh, always choose the relationship over being theologically right, around food sacrificed to idols and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. so. Great. What does hope teach is the path to salvation? Um, and this is really good. I, I spent a lot of time studying this in graduate school, um, and there were, I, I've, been, I've been a believer of Jesus Christ my whole life, and this was, this was a question that really troubled me, because part of, part of our, our directive as followers of Jesus is to tell other people about what it means to follow Jesus, and then this question in my life was like, well, what am I actually telling people to do? You know, with that, do we, is, it, is it some kind of assent to belief? Am I just saying agree with these statements about God or believe it in your heart, but what does that even mean? Because that's difficult to explain. Um, so I, I'm going to draw something. Um, that this is how I share my faith with people about how to share your faith in God and what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, pictures are helpful and they're helpful to me. So if you consider, you know, there's this big pit of sin. Now, God created us to be up here. You know, if, if God is, you know, we'll say represented by this, God is omnipresent, God is everywhere. Uh, even if you're in sin, God is there with you, and God created us to be up here with Him. That was the perfect plan that God wanted us to be a part of a relationship with Him in His full presence, but we're told in the Bible that we didn't do that. And not just by the individual behaviors that we have, the, the individual mistakes that we make, the ways that we break God's law, but by our very nature, we are a, a people, a race, a, a being that are disobedient to God. We don't, as, as, as Scott pointed out, when Jesus ups the ante, none of us is perfect. None of us has done all of the things that God has said, this is the standard and we can't live up to that. And the point for God isn't that we would be perfect, but that the perfection of Jesus Christ would be who we become. So we are no longer, because of our sin, our disobedience to God, we don't live on the same plane as God. We, we aren't separated from His presence, but we're not in the perfect relationship that He envisions for us. So, so we end up you know, in this pit of sin, and the trouble with it is that we actually figure out how to, how to deal with it. You know, we kind of get comfortable down here. It's like all of the things that we, you know, really don't mind about ourselves. We know we could be doing better. We know that there's a better way to live, but, you know, this is okay. This is fine. We can just deal with it. And then over time, this starts to kind of collect a bunch of junk, 
You know, all of our junk is down here and we start living with it. Now, historically, there have been different systems of thought that have said, well, we want to try to get back to where God is. We think it'd be better not to live in our junk. And so different, you know, religious ideas have tried to build, you know, ladders to climb to God. Um, One of the questions we got last service was, you know, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? Other religions tell you what are the steps. This is the worst staircase I've ever drawn in my life. Man, that's terrible. Can you all see that? Remember that art class we took in seminary? I'm not a carpenter either, so... Every religious system in the world will tell you these are the steps to climb to get out of the pit. You know, do this, do this, do this. And they're all pretty honest and they say, no, no, none of us has ever gotten back up there. But you can get as high as you can, you know, by climbing these different steps. Philosophy, religious practices, uh, moralistic behavior. But they don't all get back to the top. And so God says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to send my son into this mess for you. Uh, one of my favorite passages of scripture, John chapter 4, the whole chapter basically he's talking with the woman at the well about salvation. How do you get right with God? And he says that I am the living water. He, he calls himself the water that will never leave you thirsty, that will always satisfy. So the way I envision this isn't Jesus giving us another ladder to climb. It's God actually pouring Jesus out into our mess like a bucket full of water. And Jesus, is, his whole presence is consuming this reality for us. And the water keeps rising and rising and rising. And what God says is that if you believe in Jesus as your living water, that will allow you to float out of the pit, not climb, but be supported by Jesus Christ, the living water, who can raise you back up to where Jesus Christ is. And it's all related to your relationship with Jesus. He's the one, not another ladder to climb, but a a way to live into the presence of God. And then the way I'll also illustrate it too is that the church acts like a boat. One of the things when I was doing research in, in graduate school about salvation is that historically, we've gotten away from this in the last couple hundred years, historically belonging to the church was a part of your salvation experience. That's the way it was drawn up. The church is actually a part of what it means to be in a relationship with God. If you're not, you're just floating around out here by yourself. You know, the Bible talks about, um, you know, uh, assessing your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, don't sink back down. You know, don't give up. But the best way to do that isn't on your own. It's in a community with other believers. And so that's why we do things like Alpha and small groups, community worship, is that this is part of what it means to belong to the relationship that you have in Jesus Christ. Um, And that's kind of how I see it articulated in Scripture. So Jesus Christ, the living water, floating us out of that pit, giving everyone the opportunity to float up. Um, I would say that there are a lot of people in the world who, you know, they like all this stuff down here. They'd rather be back in their junk, and so they just hang on to the bottom. You know, they don't let go of all the things that are keeping them trapped. And and the Bible says that that's what what hell is like. Jesus giving you the ability to choose to live all in your junk or to be be floated back up into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's what I would say is what, that's how I I share my faith with people. Um, I don't know if that's what hope teaches, but (laughs) that was the question, I guess. I hope I'm not wrong. (laughs) Don't fire me. It's beautiful. All right. Pictures. My granddaughter was born, stillborn. Will she know me as her grandmother in heaven? 
uh, I'm, there's just a lot of pain in life, isn't there? And many of you know that pain or a similar pain. Uh, my answer is yes, and here's why. The psalm, psalm writer talks about God knowing us, knitting us together in our mother's womb. Uh, we adopted a little girl seven years ago and have been reading a lot about uh, trauma and how there's, uh, it, it's really unbelievable, there's um, trauma that kids experience in the womb uh, that impacts who they are, personality and behavior as they grow up. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely, your granddaughter will recognize you as uh, her grandmother in heaven. If Jesus knows the future, why doesn't he stop bad things? Uh, and I think every service we've got a question that's similar to this. Why do bad things happen to good people? If, God, if, if we serve a perfect and good and loving and just God, why are there tragedies that occur, especially to people who are innocent? Um, you know, why, why do babies die? Things like that. Uh, Every, every question like every question that we'll answer, but specifically like this, there's something more like what Scott answered behind it, you know, probably some tragedy or some pain. And so, you know, my answer to this question isn't meant to dismiss that. Usually if I'm talking one-on-one -on -one with somebody and they ask a question like this, I'll, I'll probe a little bit further because I want to know, again, the relationship that's there. I want to work on that relationship and say, well, what, what is that behind the question that's causing you to ask why bad things are happening? Because there are individual answers to that. Um, but, you know, if Jesus knows the future, if God is omniscient, he has all knowledge of things that are happening, past, present, and future are all one thing to God, why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? Um, a professor of mine once asked a thought experiment of, you know, what, well, what would that look like? You know, what, what would happen then if, if God did just stop all of the bad things in the world from happening? How, how would our existence be? One of the things that we believe as Christians is that we have free will to, to follow God and to live our lives uh, as we, more or less, as we choose to live them. You know, the, this picture, you, you, can, you can stay on the bottom of this, whatever, this pit. You can grab hold of the bottom and not let go. And God says you're free to choose that or you're free to let go and live in new life. And, and the way that God created the world is, is all of creation has free will, you know, the, the image that we have of God as, as followers of Jesus isn't one where, you know, where he's uh, got, got his hands on all the strings of, of the universe and he's just pulling them as, as he wants to. God in creation set up the world and the whole universe to work as a system so that the whole universe could be free. You know, the, the different weather patterns and, and so then the natural disasters that are a part of the weather patterns. And God's just not putting his finger down and saying, I want a tornado there and a hurricane there and an earthquake there. That's not the way the Bible tells us God operates. Just as this is the way that God doesn't tell us he operates like I'm going to, you know, knock that person down and, and give this person everything they want. And God has given us free will, the whole universe free will. And that means that there will be bad things that happen and there will be good things that happen. And, and what I would say is... Um, not unlike how, how would you, what would it look like, but what is it that tells you it should be different? You know, what is it inside of you that says that's a bad thing that just happened? What, what causes you to put a judgment on, you know, certain natural disasters or events in this world? Things happen, um, you know, seemingly without cause, but there's something inside of us that says it shouldn't be that way. Something is quite wrong with 
you know, the way that the world seems to be fallen, the, the, the people who cause harm to others, what is it that tells you that that's a bad thing? You know, and I would say that that's, that's the Holy Spirit nudging you in your heart to say, like, there, there's more to this world than just what we see. There's more going on behind the scenes, and God has put in you a spirit that is drawn to Him, that, that is attracted to God's perfection and His goodness. And without, without some of the things in this world that happen, how would we be drawn closer and closer to God? Um, Jesus is teaching about this. Jesus was, was perfect. He was asked this question several times in his ministry. Why did this bad thing happen and who caused, you know, this person to be born blind? Was it sin? Was it his parents' sin? You know, a tower fell on some people. Who, who did that? Was it because they were, who is to blame? And Jesus gives similar answers saying, you know, this person was born blind so that my power could show through his life, so that he could heal him and show other people what it's like to follow Jesus. He says in Matthew 5, 45, he gives the sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors. So Jesus calls it to a to more relational truth. He says there, there are people who deserve bad things to happen to them. Maybe there are people who have good things happen to them. God causes the sun and the rain to fall on both. What Jesus said is more important is how do you treat them? You know, what's your approach to people who you think aren't deserving of love, who maybe have done things that you don't agree with or, or lived in ways that you don't agree with? Are you willing to approach them in love and, and to show them that God loves them in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their trials, uh, and whatever they're going through in life, that it's up to us to love them in the middle of those bad things? Our family has some outspoken non-believers. How can we encourage and show God to them without conflict? Uh, I always think it's St. Francis of Assisi who said this, but I could be wrong. Uh, somebody said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. So the point being, sometimes, most of the time, just the way we live our life is a whole lot more important than, you know, can we persuade someone with rational argument or debate to believe the way we believe. Uh, I, there was something about Jesus. I mean, he was a great teacher, but also it was just the way he lived his life. There was something so attractive about that that people wanted to know, how, how did he get to the point where he uh, believes what he believes about God? How, how the life that he lives and the love that he showed uh, was absolutely mind-blowing to people. And so then that caused them to want to know more. And so I wonder sometimes if, if we really got serious as a church about making that the starting place, that at, at the job, um, at school, in our neighborhood, uh, we just lived in such a way that was uh, aromatic. There was a fragrance to how we lived our life that caused people... Like, if, you, if your neighbor is grilling something you, and you can smell it, you're just like, oh, how come we're not being invited over for that? Like, what if we lived our life in such a way that people were like, I want to be invited into that? And, and then you just trust the Holy Spirit to give you the opportunity, the right time and in the right way to say, here's why I live the way that I live. Um, and then answer 1B maybe conflict would be a good thing. <laughs> how, do, how do you answer, how do you talk to them without conflict? Sometimes I think conflict is a good thing. 
but you'll have to kind of judge that for yourself. A lot of people are passive-aggressive, is what I'm trying to say. And what if, what if we just learn to speak the truth with, with love? Uh, practice doing that. Yeah. There, uh, when, when Jesus is calling his disciples, um, he gets some pushback on, well, I can't follow you because of these certain things, the way my life is going right now, or all these excuses. And, and Jesus at one point says that I haven't come to bring unity, I've come to bring division, which is actually a paradoxical statement because later he prays for the, the unity of the church. But he says, you know, I've come to, to turn father against son and mother against daughter. And not meaning that we should actively fight, but that Jesus was calling out the truth, or the reality that not everyone will agree with people who follow Jesus Christ. You know, that, that there is a, a, at a certain level, at a certain point, um, we are called to live a, a peculiar life set apart from the way of the world, that, that God's ways are better than anything else that the world will tell us. And that might cause conflict and, and, and division, but we shouldn't actively be seeking that out. Um, we should be living in a way that, that calls people into, um, into relationship. Uh, what's the difference between your soul and the Holy Spirit? And it says, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, the Holy Spirit is, is a person in the Godhead. So again, I think Scott already mentioned we, we believe in, in, in God uh, monotheistically, one God, but with three persons. Um, the, the Greek word for person is prosopon, so faces is a way to think about it. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the different persons, and the, the Bible talks about what each of the persons of the Godhead does. Um, and again, it's not something to, to just say, well, I don't understand it. I love Scott's response about it being God in relationship. Um, and the Holy Spirit is, is what relates to us actively even now. Um, that, that Jesus Christ was the visible representation of God on earth as the Son of God. The Father is the creator of all things. And the Holy Spirit, it says in John, uh, John chapter 16, um, it, 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 Jesus is teaching about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he says, in fact, it's best that I do go away, talking about his death and resurrection, because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do, then I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness, uh, and of the coming judgment. And so the Holy Spirit is that active part of God's voice speaking into the world, telling us, reminding us of the teachings of Jesus Christ, and, and giving us instructions for how to live, and, and calling our hearts into a higher way of, of living this life, and a very real presence with us, active in the church, in the life of the believers. Your soul uh, is the part of you uh, that is eternal. You know, it says in Genesis, when when God created uh, Adam and Eve, it says he breathed life into them, and the Hebrew word ruah there is more than just air, it's, it's life, that God put his life, the, the breath of God into our souls, causing us to be not just physical beings, but eternal beings that will live with God in, in, in his presence for all of eternity. Uh, and so your soul is, is that part of you that is persistent, um, that is... is uh, the, the actual you more than your physical self, but uh, the part of you that is the most real, uh, and, and those two things relate. Just wondering about the rapture of God's people. Be nice to hear a sermon series on this. Thank you. We've got a very grateful congregation this morning. So um, at Hope, we try to uh, preach on things in a similar kind of ratio to how they get talked about in Scripture. So um, 
we don't talk about end times, we don't preach about end times very often uh, because it actually doesn't get talked about as often as you would think in, in Scripture. And particularly the word rapture, I could be wrong, but I think it only occurs one time, uh, the word rapture in all of the New Testament. It's in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul's talking about you know, the second coming of Christ. He says, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. And that phrase in my translation, caught up, is sometimes translated rapture. So it's the idea that when Jesus comes again, uh, Christians who are still alive will be, uh, will escape out of the pain and suffering and, you know, non-belief of the world and, and get to go to heaven. So there's a lot of different uh, theories around eschatology, the end times, what happens in the end. And uh, there are some people, Revelation talks about uh, the Antichrist, uh, other passages to do as well, uh, talks about uh, the millennial reign of Christ. And so does that happen before the rapture, uh, after the rapture, before the tribulation? There's seven years of tribulation where the Antichrist rules. And so there's... Uh, pre-trib millennialism, post-trib millennialism. I like what Pastor Mike says. Uh, he says we are pan-millennial. We believe it will all pan out in the end. <laughs> and that seems to be what Jesus says. Yeah. When they ask Jesus, when's this going to happen? He says, beats me. Nobody knows, not even I, the Son of God, know. So don't spend your time trying to figure out, even though we want to. When I was 23, a buddy and I got a bunch of whiteboards and, and, and big papers, and we were going to figure out the timeline of this. We spent an entire weekend in the fall because we're that big of losers. That sounds incredibly um, dirty. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> trying to figure out the timeline of the second coming. And so... Um, what did you I figure out? It, that we have no clue. Got it. And so, but it, we had to go through it. And so sometimes when people come to me and ask what's the best book on Revelation or End Times... I want to roll my eyes, but then I remember I did the same thing, you know. And so I think you have to go through these seasons on your own and, um, and, and figure out. When the, but the point is, Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready? There are numerous religions worldwide. Each has a text or a book that leads or teaches them in their faith. From a historical perspective... Uh, how do we Christians argue that our Bible is the most accurate slash true compared to the Koran, etc.? Um, this is actually something we talk about in Alpha, um, and so Scott can kind of chime in too. I think you give that talk more than I do um, about about the the historical Bible, why it's uh, why it's trustworthy is kind of the talk of the or the title of the Alpha talk. How can I trust um, the the Bible that we have? Uh, and part of it, you know, the, the answers that I would give might appeal to some of you, but not all of you. Um, there's archaeological evidence that supports the veracity of Scripture, um, that we have uh, original autographs of, of the, the text in Scripture uh, dating back to uh, just a few decades after when Jesus lived. Not all of them, some of them. Um, all, we have the entire complete Bible uh, dating back to, I think, 200 years after the life of Christ, which I know sounds like a lot. Um, we have a lot of them, which is also true. We have, like, I think, 6,000 documented um, cases of the Bible just a couple hundred years after Jesus lived, and then some portions that date back even farther 
to right up until Jesus' death. What, what's interesting is when you compare the number and the timing of, of the different autographs that we have of Scripture to other texts that we are perfectly acceptable uh, just, just saying, well, we got that. So like Plato's Republic, very w- widely taught book. Um, no one's really tinkered with it in a really long time. Uh, we have, I think, one copy of Plato's Republic dating to something like five or 600 years after he originally wrote it. But we consider it to be the, the final product. Um, the Gallic Wars written by Caesar, uh, even further out, we have like one copy of that from, again, several hundred years after he was supposed to have... I think the, the earliest copy of Homer's Odyssey we have is like a thousand years after it actually happened. But again, we teach that in high schools and that's a thing that is, we consider that to be a finished product. So the, the sheer amount of original texts that exist of the, 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 the biblical scriptures in their original language is compelling for me from just a, a, an archaeological scientific perspective um, in comparison to other religions where um, uh, the Quran is actually an, an ever-evolving document. Uh, that Islam is a progressive religion, meaning that somebody could teach something today in Islam, a prophet or, or a leader of that religion, an imam, and they might document that as, as scripturally authoritative for their documentation and continue to teach it as though it was something written thousands of years ago. Um, and there's a part of Jewish faith, the Tanakh, those are commentaries that they consider to be authoritative and progressively unfolding. And in Christianity, we don't do that. You know, this we consider to be complete. We won't add to it. We won't take away from it. Uh, and, and so that, that's part of it too. Um, as to why, you know, you should, I don't know, dig into this. Um, there, there are compelling things about Scripture that, that I, having read the Quran and some of the other uh, main religious teachings, uh, there, there's a difference in quality to it as well. Uh, a depth and honesty that, that I haven't found in other religious texts uh, that I really enjoy. Um, and part of it, you know, so that's the personal side, the archaeological side. Um, there's also the side of, of faith. You know, my faith is not in the Bible. My faith is in Jesus Christ. And this is the book that tells me about him uh, and, and is verified by uh, historical tradition and archaeological evidence. And so I read this not because I believe in this. I believe in Jesus and this is what tells me about him. I was hoping you were going to go long enough that I would say, oh, that's the last question, but I think <laughs> we should talk about this. Okay. Uh, what is Hope's stance on homosexuality and transgender issues? And, and I think you, you could just say, what is Hope's stance on fill in the blank? And it would be this answer. So the starting place for us is that God calls us to love all people. God love, calls us to love all people. Um, if you can't get to that point, you don't move on to the next point. God calls us to love all people, your neighbor, your mother-in-law, whoever. If you can't get to, you don't move on to the next point. Got it? God calls us to love all people. Secondly, we are all sinners. We are all sinners. We're all sinners in need of God's grace to save us. If we can't understand that and own that and and live out of that, we don't get to move on to the next step. God calls us to love all people. Every single one of us are sinners. And then the third, I've been at Hope for 12 years, and we have taught consistently 
uh, on, on this. Here's God's boundaries for sexuality. Here's what the Bible uh, describes as God's boundaries for sexuality. That hasn't changed in the 25 years that Pastor Mike has been leading Hope. Certainly hasn't changed in the 12 years that I've been a, a part of Hope. Uh, you look at uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, explains why a man and a woman uh, leave their mother and father and are united into one and the two become one flesh. Jesus points back to that in the Gospels as he's talking about marriage. Uh, Paul points back to Jesus and that. And so from cover to cover in the Bible, there's this consistency around sexuality. And sexuality is to be uh, within the boundaries of a married relationship. And the reason God does this is because of love. God doesn't want us to get hurt. The same reason you would say to your teenage children, you know, I don't want you to get hurt messing around with sexuality in ways that you're not ready for. God doesn't want us to get hurt. So uh, those are the three. Love all people. Uh, everybody is sinners. Here's what the Bible teaches ar around boundaries. Now, the other thing I would say is I think we pretty quickly jump to number three and don't really spend a whole lot of time on number one and number two. And so we've been trying really hard at Hope to spend more time, uh, particularly at number one. Uh, Pastor Mike has talked a, a couple of times in sermons recently how he has an LGBT listening group uh, that he's had going on for I don't, over a year at this point. And they're just try we're trying to listen well because a lot of people, there's a lot of people in that community who are a part of Hope um, and don't always feel that they are loved. And so we've got work to do to create a church um, environment where all people actually feel like they are loved by God uh, when they come through the doors of this place. Um, anything else I wanted to say about that? Oh, I remember the sermon Mike preached. It was live streamed in. We, you know, we, we set the preaching schedule about a year in advance. And so uh, there was a sermon um, scheduled for... Uh, what was the title? Oh, uh, The Intersection of uh, Politics and Faith or something like that. And uh, it was scheduled to be preached uh, on whatever weekend it was. The Friday before that weekend was when the Supreme Court came down with their ruling uh, that made same-sex marriage uh, legal in Iowa. And then Mike had to preach on the connection between um, politics and, and faith. And so... As he was preaching through, A, love all people, B, we're all sinners, C, here's what the Bible teaches, uh, the worship centers started clapping on part C. Here's what the Bible teaches. And I'll never forget, Mike's response was, wouldn't it have been nice if we would applaud it at part A? Wouldn't it have been nice if, if when we start by saying God calls us to love all people, the congregation would have applauded at that. And so we have work to do uh, to move more and more to the place where we actually love the way Jesus loves. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that God loves me because I know I am a sinner. Uh, let's stand together. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing our final song. So, Lord, you're building a church here, and your church is a community of people who are far from perfect, uh, but who know that we are desperately in need of you and, and the kinds of things that only you can provide and give. Uh, real hope and real joy, lasting joy, no matter what's going on uh, in our lives and, and in this world. 
Uh, we need connections with you and, and with one another. We ask that you would continue to be at work removing those things, removing those obstacles, re- removing our sin that disconnects us from you, and you would be showing us the way uh, back to home, back to uh, the way you originally created things to be, where we are united with you in relationship with you uh, and experiencing the very best that you have to offer. Uh, we ask that you would show us the way forward uh, more and more all the time as we ask questions and get answers. We will have more questions and we trust that you'll give more answers, but more than anything, we want to trust that you will give yourself and that that, uh, that will be enough for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.